0: Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 9. Last week we saw the miracle of Jesus. When his disciples saw a man who had been born blind and want to have a theological conversation, Jesus responds by giving them not only truth, but letting them see his grace and power. So the man born blind has been healed, but then this forces the question upon us. Who is Jesus? That he could heal this man. So we're in John 9. I'm gonna read the rest of the chapter. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 12. This week I'll begin reading at verse 13 through the end of the chapter. The man is brought before the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the righteous rulers of the people of God, and yet it confronts us. Who is Jesus? This is John 9. I'm gonna begin reading at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? He is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how can, he can now see or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and ask, what are we blind to jesus said if you were blind you would not be guilty of sin but now that you claim you can see your guilt remains let me pray that god would apply and transform our hearts by the reading and preaching of his word let's pray lord we give you thanks for the ministry of jesus our savior We thank you for the the clarity with which your word announces to us the hope of the gospel. And so Lord in heaven, we come asking that that those who do not yet have faith in Christ would be able, like we witness in this passage, to come and find the Savior, to place their trust in him, to be able to say, Lord, I believe and worship you. For those of us who, who follow after Jesus as his disciples, Lord, make us bold in our proclamation of his truth make us confident in his power and lord let us be compassionate as we love with the love with which jesus has shown to us lord we pray in the name of our savior amen have you ever taken kids to an art museum i mean before you go you imagine an engrossing scene where they're going to be captured by the beauty of the, the great art that's all around them. But all you do all day is deal with complaints. I'm hungry. My feet hurt. You spend the whole time reminding them, be quiet. Don't touch that. Get back here. Now, of course, some museums provide kid-friendly activities to keep the little ones engaged. But, but you can't get them to stop and even look at the masterpieces. And the most feedback you can drag from them would be something simplistic. I like yellow. Although I suspect that someone with a true appreciation for art would feel the same way taking me to an art museum. They might imagine a thoughtful, meditative response. Someone with true appreciation of art would understand the artist's struggle, would would, would be able to interpret the scene in front of them and they will see the deeper meaning. They'll be captured by the the power of the the art in front of them. But, But when they ask me, I just say, well, I like yellow. Because you can be standing in front of the same image, in front of the same scene, and not see the same thing. One person will understand the deeper meaning, will be emotionally connected, When all I can say is, it's pretty. You can see Jesus without really seeing Jesus. I mean, there were many witnesses who saw the miracle, who who saw the interaction of Jesus with the man. Many more who heard the testimony of this man and saw this one that they'd known. Who had been born blind, now able to walk through the city, now able to to lead himself, now able to see. Many saw the miracle, but never really saw the miracle because they didn't understand its deeper significance. The man who had been born blind, now healed by the miracle of Jesus, is pulled into a deeper conflict. When he's asked by the people around him, his neighbors, they, he just repeats for them what has happened. They want to know, well, where is Jesus? I, I don't know. And so they bring this man to the Pharisees. Look back at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. This is actually a, a seemingly wise thing for them to do. They're looking for a religious explanation, a spiritual explanation, even a biblical understanding of what's taking place. And so they say, well, where can we figure this out? The Pharisees will be helpful. They've studied the scriptures. They're committed to the, the authority of God. They are the religious elite. They are determined and serious in their pursuit of obedience to the law. They can help us figure out what has happened. And then we're introduced in verse 14 to a detail that we didn't know at the beginning of the chapter. Not a detail that would surprise us knowing Jesus's ministry, but we're told that the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, the day of rest, a day on which work by the command of God is not allowed. Now, in some sense, this is a a new detail to us, but not surprising because we've seen this happen before. Back in John chapter five, when Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, we're told that that happened on the Sabbath. It, it raised controversy because Jesus commanded that man to pick up his mat and to walk, to go home, to perform an act of work on the Sabbath. But it wasn't merely about the, the man who had been healed; work, it was about the work of Jesus. Who does he think he is that he would heal on the Sabbath? And so that's the conflict which is raised again here in John 9. There's a controversy because Jesus is, is breaking in their eyes the Sabbath. And so they bring the man and they, they question him. They want to know how he had received his sight. So he repeats it. Now, thankfully, John knows that we've heard this re- repeatedly. So we get the, the summary in verse 15 that Jesus put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And this creates a, a problem for the Pharisees, a debate within their ranks. Because if, if Jesus worked on the Sabbath, Verse 16, well, then he can't be from God because he's broken the Sabbath commandment. Anyone who would break the Sabbath commandment isn't truly a follower of God. Therefore, we can reject Jesus. But verse 16 also tells us that there's, there are others among the Pharisees who say, but, but how could a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they, they feel the tension. They, they see a miracle has taken place. And so if Jesus is a miracle worker, then God must be on his side. But he, but he performed the miracle on the Sabbath. Therefore, God... Must be against him now logically the the first argument that that he's a sabbath breaker is the stronger argument because even throughout the old testament there have been times that that miracles have been performed even through the enemies of god's people god god can't even speak through a donkey at times you don't have to really be on god's side for god to work through you and so so it leaves open the possibility that well Maybe that's not, not exactly always 100% true, but if he breaks the Sabbath, if he's a lawbreaker, well, then he can't be who he claims to be, a prophet who has come from God. But see, that assumes, that, that that's a solid argument if the premise upon which it's based is true, that Jesus has broken the Sabbath. But we already know at this point in the Gospel of John that, that to do a miracle on the Sabbath is an act of mercy allowed by God. And that that Jesus himself is, of course, working on the Sabbath because if God ceased to work on the Sabbath, then the universe would disappear. God upholds everything by his power. And so, of course, if God works on the Sabbath, then Jesus can work on the Sabbath because he's God himself. See, but we, we as the readers of John's Gospel already know that from John chapter five. We heard it repeated by Jesus in John chapter 7 when that controversy is, he's reminded of that controversy, of course, he's the one with power over the Sabbath. So they, they ask the man, how did this happen? And he just repeats the how, but but we realize that the how is not really the question. The question is, who? Who has the power and authority to do this? So because the Pharisees are divided about what they should do, about even the theological explanation, they decide, well, you know what, let's, let's gather a little bit more of the facts. If this isn't the man who had been blind, then, it, then there's no miracle, we don't have to worry about the problem. If this man, it, even if he hadn't been blind from birth, I mean, we know that there's some, there some prophets that can heal somebody who was made blind, but, but we don't know anybody that's ever healed somebody born blind. So let's get some more details because then we might not have to worry about this theological problem. There might not be a miracle even in front of us. And so they invite the, they require the man's parents to come. But you, but you see the, the way the, the whole situation has turned because the conflict has been ratcheted up. The parents understand now that this is a controversy, not just about the identity of their son, but about the identity of Jesus. It's a controversy about the Sabbath. And they do not want to be caught in the middle of this. Why? Well, John makes it clear to us in verse 22. His parents were afraid of the Jews for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. To make a public claim about Jesus could cost them everything i mean remember this is jerusalem in the first century not wilmington in the 21st century they don't have many non-jewish neighbors to be thrown out of the synagogue pushes them to the very fringes of society it breaks all of the relationships they have not just on the not just for sabbath worship but throughout their lives And so they'll give very basic answers, but they won't get pulled in to the debate. Yes, he is our son. And yes, he was born blind. It wasn't an accident in infancy that, of course, he doesn't remember and that he just assumes, and we've just kind of said, yes, since infancy, you've been blind. No, he was born blind. But that's all they're willing to say. Everything else, they, they, they push back off on him. If you want to know more, ask him. We don't want to be in the middle of this. We're confused about what's happened, how it could possibly happen. But we see that that when the Pharisees are asking them, this is not merely that the Pharisees want want to nail down the sequence of events. How did it happen? That there was mud and then there was washing and then there was seeing. No, they're not really concerned about the how, they're concerned about the who. Who is this miracle worker? Because the identity of Jesus is the central question, not just of John 9, but really of the Gospel of John, or more fully of the Scriptures themselves. And so in the midst of this conflict, they, they bring forth the man as a witness again. And for a second time, we read in verse 24, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Now, first of all, you notice the way that the language is more serious. We've now moved into this quasi-judicial kind of format. I mean, this is not the Sanhedrin. This is not a formal legal trial, but it has that kind of feel. This is the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, gathered formally together, summoning this man and demanding an answer from him. And notice how how John describes him in verse 24. It's the same way he was described in verse 13. They summoned the man who had been blind. He's no longer blind, he's a man who can see. He had been blind, a reminder to us, even as John narrates it for us, of the miracle that has taken place. And so the religious leaders in verse 24 make a demand of the man, give glory to God. Now, this isn't a call to worship, an invitation to worship. This is the demand that he tell the truth. Put your right hand in the air, your left hand on the Bible, and swear to God that you're going to tell the truth. For God's sake, give us the right answer. Admit to us now that this was all some kind of fraud because Jesus, we know, a Sabbath-breaker, could not have performed this miracle, so admit it to us. And yet there's, there's irony in the way that John relates this to us. Give glory to God, they said. But if he does what they ask, he will steal glory away from God. I mean, the only way for him to really give glory to God is to reiterate the truth of what he has already told them. The only way to really give glory to God is to to repeat what he's already said to them. He gives glory to God not by denial, but by fearlessly repeating this truth. And he says it clearly in verse 25, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I can't answer your theological debate here. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I mean, there's such power in the simplicity of this man's testimony. I don't know all the intricacies of your theological debates. I'm not a Pharisee. I've never read the scriptures. I have been blind since birth. I don't know everything that you claim to know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. There's a boldness in this man's testimony. As the passage continues, he gets more and more bold. The first time he's before them, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where Jesus is. I don't, I don't even know, I mean, they call him Jesus. I never even met the man before. I don't know what's happening. And now he'll stand when they confront him and say, I don't know that answer, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And see, there's such power in his testimony that I I think there's something we can learn here. First, in his boldness, that we can announce the same truth. I was blind, maybe not physically, but but we'll see that this passage is about more than, than being physically blind. It's about not seeing the spiritual truth that's right in front of us. I was blind, but now I see. And so there's a boldness in witnessing the, for the truth of the gospel, even if, it, even if it becomes costly. For he surely knows the debate, the reasons his parents snuck out, that he will be thrown out of the synagogue if he makes a claim like this. But I think there's a second thing that, that we, can, we can learn from this man. Is his willingness to say, I don't know. I mean, that can be a powerful admission for us as Christians. If somebody with whom you're in conversation, a a skeptic, a a neighbor, a friend, a family member, says and and challenges you on something, perhaps the, the most bold thing you could do is say, I don't know. Because that can actually undermine the assumptions that people have about Christianity. I mean, most people assume that Christians come to God with life all figured out, that they've cleaned themselves up, that they've come to understand, they've studied the scriptures, they've gotten themselves before God, and then God looks at them and says, oh, well, now that you're all cleaned up, I'll take you. Now that you know all the answers, you're mine. That's actually the assumption of the Pharisees in the first century. The reason that they zealously pursued the law was so that God would be required to love them. If I keep the law, if I know the scriptures forward and backward, then of course God will save me that's not at all how christianity works christianity is not for the elite for the spiritually successful for the the intellectually uh, uh, knowledgeable it is for weak broken sinners who come to god by faith alone receiving mercy by god's grace we didn't get here because we passed the bible exam we didn't get here because we're more righteous than others we got here because of the grace and mercy of god and so just admitting I don't know can actually change the tone of a conversation where it becomes filled with conflict when we step back and say "I I don't know when we humbly say you know I I'm not a Christian because I've got this all figured out I'm a Christian because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay for my sins well that can change the conversation now you might need to say to them hey but that is a really good question so can I, can I do a little reading? Can I look for an answer? Can I, can I go back and study that passage again? Because I think you've asked a really important question. And now you've created a second conversation by saying, I don't know, you've changed the first conversation and created a, a second opportunity for you to repeat the gospel. So that even if in that minute you, you feel so flustered and you just say, I don't know, and you don't get to the part about God's grace and mercy, well, start with that in the next conversation. You know, I, it was helpful for me to be reminded that I, I didn't come to, to believe in Jesus after I had figured out all the answers. I came to believe in Jesus because I saw the, the, the main answer is about who he is and what he's done for me. See, as this man humbly admits that he doesn't know the answer to their debate, but then boldly tells them what he does know, we see a, a transformation in in him and there's something admirable in the way he he responds in this passage he he becomes more and more bold as the passage goes on in verse 25 one thing i do know i was blind but now i see and so they repeat their question to him okay what happened what did he do to you explain it to us how did he open their eyes and now the the man in in boldness is willing to challenge them directly Look at verse 27, he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. I mean, that's a bold statement to make. I I joked with the pastors this week. I said, I'm going to get a T-shirt made as a preacher that has that verse on it. So when you come to me to ask, I'll just say, I told you already and you didn't listen. I mean, parents, you could probably use that as well. Teachers, you would probably make great use of that. I told you already, and you didn't listen. But, but one of the pastors challenged me, he said, well, don't just quote the first part of the verse, Kevin. Because the man is not only bold, he's radically generous in inviting them to respond to the gospel. He's not merely pointing the finger at them. I told you already, and you didn't listen. He continues, why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you Want to become his disciples too? I mean, the invitation here, it, it, it's clear. He's not assuming that they're ready to, fall, to, to, to walk the center aisle, fall on their knees at the front of the church. No, but he's challenging what, what they're doing. They're saying, how did it happen? And he's saying, well, I can tell you what happened and I can tell you who did this to me. Do you want to be his disciple too? I will follow him wherever he goes. Because I was blind, but now I see. Now the response that he, he receives is not a response of repentance, it's, it's hatred. Verse 28, they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple? You're a disciple of Jesus? We are disciples of Moses. All right, let's, I mean, this is the, well, my dad is bigger than your dad. My dad can beat up your dad moment on the playground. You're a disciple of Jesus. We're disciples of Moses. You know that guy, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the guy who led them out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one who walked up to the top of the mountain and saw God in in physical form. He was able to, to catch a glimpse of God. That's the man that we follow. You follow this guy, the guy of spittle and mud, And the pool of Siloam, that's who you're going to call yourself a disciple of? See, we know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, I I don't think that they're confused that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. I I don't don't think they're saying we don't know where Jesus grew up. I think what they're saying is we don't even know whose side Jesus is on. He he appears to be a sinner who breaks the Sabbath, and yet he claims to do these miracles. We don't even know what team he is on. But we know Moses, and so now the man answers, verse 30. I mean, he's getting even more bold. I mean, at this point, he probably realizes, well, there's no going back from here. I'm out of the synagogue. I am fully committed to following Jesus because my life has been transformed. There is nothing left for me of my old life anyway sitting outside synagogue worship as one who could not go and be purified in the temple i've been on the outside all along i will follow after jesus and so in verse 30 the man becomes even more bold in the face of insults he says now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes i mean we know that god doesn't listen to sinners he listens to the godly man who does his will Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, he's repeating the argument that he overheard them make at the beginning. But he's doing so as one who has faith in Jesus, as a man from God, who has the power of God to perform a miracle unlike anything that has ever been done before. See, this man, unlike the man in John 5 who was sitting beside the pool of Bethesda waiting for a miracle, this man expects no miracle. He's lived his whole life thinking, well, maybe if I had been made blind in childhood, I could find a miracle worker who could fix that. But no one's ever heard of a miracle worker being able to heal somebody who was born blind. He had given up any hope of a miracle until he met Jesus, until Jesus brought the miracle to him. That's so we he says, this is remarkable. You don't know where he's from, but you're willing to reject him. See, what's remarkable is not the miracle itself, but their reaction to it. Because of what we know about Jesus, we, as readers of the gospel, as followers of Christ, as his disciples, should not be surprised that he has the power to heal a man who had been born blind. That's not what's remarkable. That's expected when you read the gospel. What's remarkable is the lack of faith, the response to Jesus' miracle. But what's what's amazing is not that, that people believe in Jesus, but that some people could see the miracle and still not believe. See, sometimes we assume that the surprising response is to come to faith is to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, and to put your trust in. And yes, the fact that anyone ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ is miraculous because we never do it in our own power. It's always the gift of God. But when it comes to examining the facts, in looking at the evidence, the only response that makes any sense is the response of faith. Unbelief is foolishness. See, and yet we look around and and we sort of just count the number of people. We say, well, most of the people I know don't believe. Only a few of the people I know believe. Therefore, the more reasonable response is unbelief. No. Don't count the responses. Look at the evidence. Jesus has come from God with power to heal even the blind. The reasonable response is to put your trust in him. Well, now they're done with him. They continue to heal their insults at him. We're given one of those insults in verse 34, when the Pharisees reply to the man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out of the synagogue. Now, Jesus hears about this and comes and finds the man. Which is useful to us because now Jesus expands the application of this passage, not just to this one man, not just about physical sight, but he expands it so that we understand all along he's been talking about the spiritual sight, about faith and unbelief. And so Jesus confirms this man's faith. Jesus shows him that he is more than a miracle worker. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is, as he reveals himself, the Son of Man, the promised figure from the Old Testament, the the one sent by God. And so when when Jesus finds the man, the man then asks the question, Well, well, who is this Son of Man, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. In verse 37, we read Jesus' response, You have now seen him. In fact, He is the one speaking with you. You have now seen him. I mean, that's a reminder of the miracle. This man has never seen anyone before today, he's only heard the passers by. He's never seen his mother or father's face until today. And so Jesus has remarkable power. He has restored this man's sight. But more than that, this man has had his spiritual sight restored. You have now seen him. Not just the man Jesus of Nazareth, but you have seen him as the son of man, the son of God, the promised Messiah. And so the man responds in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. But now Jesus turns the conversation back on the crowd, on everyone else who's listening. In verse 39, Jesus says, "'For judgment I have come into this world, "'so that the blind will see, "'and those who see will become blind.'" And the Pharisees, who were, some of whom are still following this man, still interested in, in what happens from this moment, even though they've, they've removed him from the synagogue, they, they ask Jesus in verse 40, what? Are we blind too? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not claim to be guilty. You would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim, you can see your guilt remains. See, the very presence of Jesus, the very power of Jesus demands a response. His presence brings judgment on people. If you continue in your unbelief, you receive judgment. If you claim you can spiritually see, but yet walk in spiritual blindness, then you are guilty before God. And so when Jesus turns the conversation from, from a physical healing to spiritual healing, then it forces the question on us. What about you? How do you respond to Jesus? And not just to the miracle of John 9, but to the miracle of the Gospel of John. How do you respond to Jesus, the Savior, who willingly takes your sin upon himself on the cross? How do you respond to the miracle that Jesus, by the power of God, walks out of the tomb on the third day, raised from the dead? I mean, the healing of a man born blind is something no one had ever seen, but that's not the hardest miracle to believe in John's gospel. It's not the biggest miracle. Jesus stepping forth from the grave demands a response. And maybe like the parents of the man, you've seen the miracles, you've heard the truth, but you're afraid of the reaction of others. Maybe maybe you weasel your way out of any real answers to hard questions. Or maybe today, like the Pharisees, you cannot admit the truth of who Jesus is because it would upset your view of the world. It would force you to acknowledge your brokenness and sinfulness. Or maybe like the man who had been blind, You've really experienced the grace of God. And that his response to declare Jesus to be Lord, to put your trust in him can be your response. The response where you say, Lord, I believe, and you worship him. Maybe his testimony really is your testimony. You might not have all of the answers to life's big questions, but you can honestly say, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your gospel, for the truth of who Jesus is, the announcement of his power and mercy and love. Lord, we thank you for the miracle that we see, your grace at work in the life of this man, a man who had suffered his entire life and yet saw your glory. A man who by his testimony brought glory to you, God. A man who by his witness announced that Jesus is Lord and worshiped him. Lord, make us bold in following after Jesus. Lord, give us the faith to believe. For those who are in here without a a knowledge of Jesus as Savior, Lord, even now give them spiritual eyes to see your truth. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.